0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lentesta. And this is our podcast for February of 2018. It's our first podcast for this month. And of course, this will be the one that you get to tide you over through Valentine's Day until the middle of the month. So from Jim and I, hugs and kisses, February and Valentine's Day. I guess that sounds better, Jim, than doing Groundhog's Day, right? No one wants to celebrate Groundhog's Day.
1: Oh, okay, let me get out of the suit. All right. <laughs> Awkward. Jeez. Awkward
0: <laughs> I was all set. All right, get just... out. <laughs> I was trying to remember what other holidays there were in, in February, and it was like, Groundhog's Day and Valentine's Day. Right, hey, go we follow. got the lights set up. <laughs> all right, fine, fine. All right. Jim, a couple of things before we get started on our story about chronological Disneyland. We're starting that series. It's been a while since we've done it. But before we do that, one of the things that we missed in our news item last week was the introduction of a paid fast pass option for guests staying club level at Walt Disney World Resorts. So the yeah. idea is this. If you're booked at a uh, club level room in, a, in a, a deluxe hotel and you're willing to pay $50 per person per day, minimum of three days, so a minimum of $150 per person, Disney will give you three extra fast passes that you can book across any park. And a couple of other interesting things that don't apply here that apply to normal guests. Number one, you can book 90 days out instead of 60 days for regular on-site guests. And also the tiering rules that are normally in effect for everyone are in effect for you. So you could, for example, in the Animal Kingdom, book both a fast pass for Navi River Journey and Flight of Passage, and that's not available to other guests. So Jim, what do you think about this? Remember when
1: you first got your hands on the deck when they were walking out, the FastPass Plus program, this was mentioned as something that they were going to try further on down the line. As Disney is doing this with its high-end customers, if we turn attention over to the value resorts, uh-huh. you look at what's going on at Pop Century where they're actually eliminating amenities. That They're taking the teeny tiny toiletries out of the room, the stuff that we all would bring home as our do it yourself souvenirs from our Disney World vacation. <laughs>
0: Exactly. I'm not kidding. I populated Hannah's bathroom one year with nothing but toiletries from Disney Hotel. She had an entire shelf of them. So I kind of see Disney's point on this. No, I get it. In (laughs) fact, I
1: haven't bought a bottle of shampoo since like... 1987 (laughs) the number of times i'm down on property these things come home they go into a shampoo bottle i'm not exactly sure what i'm putting on my head at this point it's kind of you know how with sourdough there's the mother dough that was created (laughs) decades away i'm not even sure what this chemical mixture is it could explain the lack of hair on my head at this point but again you know a lot of us do this but frankly this is why disney now has gone at least at the value resorts with this series of large shampoo and conditioner and body wash container that's basically bolted to the shower wall. And yeah. running a resort like Walt Disney was extremely expensive, keeping all of that infrastructure intact, creating the new resorts and attractions, which compel us to buy the vacation packages like the one you were just talking about with the mm-hmm. deluxe and then booking a flight to Florida. It's all enormously costly. So this is why you see Disney doing this delicate balance. Constantly, you introducing new goods and services with the hope that the public will embrace them and that then becomes a new revenue stream and at the same time looking for economies i mean it seems silly to think that well how much can disney save by eliminating the teeny tiny toiletries and going with these new giant containers but
0: it's a lot it is think about it's it's three thousand something hotel rooms Mm -hmm. at pop if, if i remember correctly times 365 You know, days times how many toiletries you have to replace in a given day. And I granted, you know, those those things probably only cost pennies, but you're talking about millions of opportunities per year for savings. times a few pennies. It's 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 gonna add up. That eventually becomes some serious money. And galaxy's edge isn't going to pay
1: for itself likewise the the rebranding should pay
0: for itself jim (laughs) of uh,
1: disney hollywood studios and speaking of which since we last recorded i had someone at a senior level at disney reach out and len it's finally time it's finally the year for the when parks and resorts is getting serious about changing the name of this 30 year old theme park
0: they're going to change the name of disney's hollywood studios
1: disney's hollywood studios and the idea is that they want to have it in place ahead of when they'll be spending tens of billions of dollars on the promotion of, of Galaxy's Edge.
0: Oh, right. Okay, so they want to make sure that they get a name change in before this huge publicity blitz in 2019 so that they don't have to do another publicity blitz after that. To... There we go. All right, good. I got
1: that. All right, and I've flat out been told that if you remember the program that was done to announce Avatar, Disney's basically going to spend twice that on Galaxy's Edge. So just picture full-page magazines ads and a huge television campaign and really a lot of money being spent.
0: I'm waiting for the spread in Martha Stewart living about the kitchens in the Star Wars land and how Blue Milk comes into play on this. I think that would be lovely.
1: I have to admit, (laughs) I would kind of look forward to that myself. So, again, we've we've only been waiting for, what, five, six years now for the the name? And I have to tell you, it's a surprisingly bland name. It's Disney Sin Imagine park. The name is spelled C-I-N-E-M-A-G-I-N-E. So sin I don't, it doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue.
0: So is it Disney's or Disney? No,
1: Disney. This is actually echoing the way the studio handles the Disney name now. Likewise, Disney Consumer Products and Interactive Media. <laughs> By the way, that's what that division of the company is called. To get to talk about a name that trips off your tongue. Disney Consumer Products and Interactive Media.
0: All right, let me just summarize here what I know the reaction is of everybody listening to this show. That is the dumbest name I've ever heard in my life. Well... Aaron, you'll bleep out what I just said there. <laughs> this is a horrible, horrible name. Well, it wasn't the
1: first choice. The first choice was... Disney's Cinemagic Kingdom. and, and in Better, fact, better. The idea was that would then have connective tissue with the Magic Kingdom and Disney's Animal Kingdom. And, and in fact, I'm told that the folks who work in promotions at Walt Disney World were really excited about that one. They actually had a, a new catchphrase they wanted to launch, something to the effect of come explore the many kingdoms of the Walt Disney World Resort. But, but here's the thing, Len. They began focus grouping the Disney Cinemagic Kingdom name. It, that's a little wordy. Go ahead, go ahead. But what they found was that when it came to first time guests and international visitors, they really got confused over the Magic Kingdom versus Cinemagic Kingdom. And the concern was that. What if somebody, again, who's not really... buys somebody, a ticket
0: for one and wants the other. Yeah. That's
1: right. You know, they they okay. go to the Cinemagic Kingdom to go to the Haunted Mansion. Or they go to yep. the Magic Kingdom for
0: Tower of Terror. I understand not the use of magic. I sort of get that. But Cinemagin is A, not a word. Mm-hmm. B, as a portmanteau, it includes cinema, which is a noun, and imagine, which is a verb. And Disney doesn't really have verbs in the names of its other parks. It's not like it's disney california exclamation mark like go california something that doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense it's terrible it's a terrible name
1: i completely understand but here they're doing all of this testing and then people like well what if they get confused about animal kingdom and it's like no no they're not going to get confused about animal kingdom because animal is baked into that name i mean it's a very strong brand there's not going to be any confusion there so, I mean, this honestly, literally was about these
0: parks need clear identities. <laughs> Jim, 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 Jim. Is, oh, hold on. So you're telling me that mm-hmm. the Disney Corporation, mm-hmm. which is putting characters in every conceivable location, in every conceivable park, mm-hmm. is now concerned about having a clear brand identity for this parks? Really? What's the brand identity for Future World these days? Well... Really? Really? really- What's the difference between the studios and the Magic Kingdom really at the end of the day? One
1: (laughs) crisis at a time,
0: Len. And and let's remember that,
1: that Epcot at one time actually went from being Epcot Center to Epcot 94 and Epcot 95. They have tried different things over there future world was supposed to go away entirely and that would that half of the park was going to become discovery land but
0: it is going away just not as fast as people think there's not a lot left of it there were worse
1: names on the table there was disney xl park there was disney hyperia i have no idea what this means but h-y-p-e-r-y park and then disney Storyverse park also sometimes when people write a survey they have a result that they want to get in
0: advance? Yeah, it sounds like the competing names were worse than the one that I don't even like that much. Wow. There we go.
1: And this survey leaked out on web back in the fall. And if we'd all been paying attention, we would have known months ago that mm-hmm. Imagine Park was the name, because this is the description that was actually included in the survey before they gave you the list of names. Enter this newly named Disney theme park and completely immerse yourself in the realm of some of your favorite stories. Step into imagined Worlds Made Real and take the lead in an adventure that surrounds you at every turn. From the edge of the galaxy to an imaginative world of toys, familiar locales become the settings of exhilarating quests to call your own. Explore them all alongside world-renowned characters and a supporting cast made up of your friends and family. Magnificent memories are unbounded as you discover this collection of amazing adventures together. And I call your attention to two turns of phrase in this survey explanation introduction. There is step into imagined worlds made real, and then the imaginative world of children. So it's it was there, it was right there in front of us the whole time. I know you hate this name. Again, it was the least ugly pig One,
0: Len. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Congratulations. Right. You're, you're the tallest dwarf. Congratulations. There we go. Why not something like Disney Movie Land, which is, granted, it, not, not particularly flowery, but kind of does get to the point about what it is. What I can tell you is that the decision was made that given
1: that movies and television shows are really no longer produced, at the studios. It just made no sense to continue to call it a studio. It wasn't a production facility anymore.
0: I get that. Okay, so the thing that is contained in this park are characters and lands based on Disney movies and television. Well, right? actually,
1: at the reimagining of this park, we're talking Muppets, we're talking Star Wars characters, we're talking... All owned by Disney. Pixar, All owned by Toy Disney. Story, and remember, Monsters, Inc. is the yet... Unnamed third component
0: coming in. Still owned by Disney. Yeah. So it's all Disney stuff. So Disney Movie Land Park or Disney Movie Park? Did it just it get got. Bland and
1: it just literally going. Well, do we want the taupe or do we want the eggshell?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Taupe, eggshell, beige. Yeah, these are horrible, horrible names. All right, well, I hope that the graphics on the t shirts are fantastic because that's what's going to have to sell this. It's it's funny
1: you mentioned the t shirts. So let's talk timetable. The timetable supposedly for this naming rebranding Parks and Resorts is supposed to formally walk out the Sin Imagine Park name later this year, supposedly at the Toy Story Land grand opening media event. And that's late spring, early summer of this year. In fact, I keep hearing Memorial Day. Then, getting back to the t-shirts, the idea is that the formal changeover is supposed to happen with the New Year's Eve party at Disney Hollywood Studios. This one coming up? Yeah. So 2018, New Year's Eve, in the fall, a series of t-shirts and coffee mugs and refrigerator magnets and all that will debut with the catchphrase, say goodbye to Hollywood. Those become available to purchase in the fall. And then there's a big party on New Year's Eve. And then people who walk in on January 1st will see the new name on the marquee. They'll have changed out the signage overnight. And the hope is that in much the same way, Disney was really, really surprised at how well the great movie ride closure stuff sold last year when that was announced for August. And so they're planning as big, if not bigger, a merch campaign to sort of back up the name change or take advantage of of the name change of Disney Hollywood Studios. And then the notion is that names in place so that by spring of 2019, when we first get Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway and then after that, with the opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, that's the name, the identity of the rebranding of the park is already in place. And so they can comfortably put these out there and make sure that nobody gets confused and goes to Cinemagic Park or, you know, when they want to go to the Magic Kingdom. Hmm. And in fact, the other thing that they're kind of hoping here, and I'm just putting this out as a long shot. I guess somebody's already put the feelers out the Billy Joel song, Say Goodbye to Hollywood. Right. Joel actually has a history with the Walt Disney
0: Company. I don't know how many people that's remember that. Right. He used to have his handprints in front of the Chinese theater, right?
1: They might be still seeing Well, that's because he was the voice of the Dodger in. Oliver and Company in 1988. Ah. You know how Disney has been doing the series of holiday specials where they bring in pop acts or that sort of thing to perform in front of the castle? Mm-hmm. They're kind of on the wish list for whatever they're putting together for the holiday season 2018 is could we maybe get Billy Joel to come to the park and perform in Disney Hollywood Studios, say goodbye to Hollywood? That's incredibly wishful thinking and you know we'll yeah. see if that actually mm-hmm. happens. But... If you talk with folks at the parks, what they're saying is, again, given the amount of money that they made off of the sale of these Great Movie Ride closure T-shirts and that sort of thing. And they not only sold a lot of them in Mickey's of Hollywood, they sold a ridiculous number of them online. Really? Yeah. There's a number of managers at that park who are hoping they can actually recover the cost of changing all of the signage and and that sort of thing just off of merch sales. Oh, yeah, yeah. So do the goodbye to Hollywood sort of promotion. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, fair enough. To sort of pivot into trying to get back to our chronological Disneyland series, we're talking about the cost of, of doing things at the parks. And when we left off, we were talking about how Disney in the early 1980s, Westcott Center was going to cost $3 billion. And that's a lot of money. As we touched on the very top of the show, that Disney likes to make money more than it likes to spend money. There are people who are genuinely embarrassed that they're taking the, the tiny toiletries out of the value resorts. But So how was Disney going to raise that $3 billion? It's pretty much the way they'd been raising money for the park since the early 1980s. And that was By increasing admission prices at the Disney parks. Okay. And in fact, they learned fairly early on during the Eisner era. As Michael came through the door, he was handed a report and was told, look... If you increase the admission prices at Disneyland by just one dollar, just that move, just that single move creates $30 million to the company's profits. You just literally have to change the one number and that comes pouring in. And at a time when he came through the door at Disney, it was a pretty desperate time. Out of the eight studios in Hollywood, they were eighth. Mm -hmm. At that point, 70% of the money the company was making was coming out of the parks, which, when you think about how diversified the Disney company is these days, the fact that they had to rely so heavily on what the parks were making to keep the company afloat, this was a really desperate situation. But this didn't start with Eisner. If we jump back two years before Michael came through the door, June of 1982, this is when the company changed over from ticket books to passports. I'm going to just sit down. I'm going to break it to you how much it costs to get into the Disney parks back in that day. And it's, it's oh, go to, ahead. a one day passport got you into the park, got you everything. That was $12 for adults. And again, Disney at that time defined an adult as anybody 13 or older. One day passport for a child. And again, Disney defined child at that point is three through 12. That was just $9 and kids under three were free. So that's what they were paying as we get started with this story. But just four months after that admission charge is put in place, Epcot opens. And I know we've hammered on this topic before in the show that started off budgeted for $400 billion, eventually cost the company $1.2 billion. But what a lot of people don't remember is right behind this was the redo of Disneyland's new fantasy land, in much the same way that the Magic Kingdom of Walt Disney World expanded and changed its fantasy land starting in 2012. Back in May of 1983, the first phase of Disneyland's new fantasy land opened. Problem was they spent $55 million on a redo. That basically didn't change the capacity of this part of the park. I mean, it all looked nice. It was all pretty. But there was no new ride. There was new, new thing to drive attendance. So the one-two punch of what they'd spent on Epcot and what they'd just done at Disney only put a huge financial strain on, on Walt Disney Productions. And this became especially dire in, in the spring of 1983 when they learned that Epcot wasn't even coming close to meeting its initial financial or attendance projection. So the company's net income that year dropped by 18%. That has a drag on the stock price. So in order to shore up the company's bottom line and more importantly to appease wall street, which at this time anyway is really believed that Walt Disney production wasn't sufficiently doing profit taking when it came to the park. So October 83, the company increases the cost of adult passports for Disneyland from $12 to $13. And the kid price stays the same. So it's been 16 months since its price increase. Now we jump ahead to seven months. Spring of 84, Southern California is getting ready for the summer of 84 for the the games of the 23rd Olympiad. And there was supposed to be this huge influx of tourists. And because they're trying to placate Wall Street, who, again, is after the company. There's a new management team in place, Ray Watson and Ron Miller, and they're after them like, you're not doing enough to make money. So May of 84, the park increases ticket prices again. They jump the adult passport from $13 to $14, but the kid ticket stays price consistent at $9. And again, want to stress here, not Eisner. This is Ron Miller. This is Ray Watson. This is the earlier Mm -hmm. group, but it's too little too late. The expected influx of tourists never happens. And Disney's net income drops by 7% that year, which is why by June of the same year, Saul Steinberg is circling the company he's talking about. He wants to break up a Walt Disney Productions and sell off its studio, the film library, and the theme parks. And so to right the ship, September of 84, Michael Eisner comes through the door. And he gets handed that report about $30 million, right off the bat, if you bump ticket prices by a dollar. So he's not on the job 100 days. And Mm -hmm. he bumps the ticket prices at Disneyland from $14 to $15. And they also bump the kid price from $9 to $10. Now, to his credit, Eisner realizes that he can't do this. They can't regularly raise the ticket prices at Disneyland or Walt Disney World. That the public isn't going to go for it. And remember, this is the plan. That... Eisner isn't looking to do a one-time ticket price gag rides. You know, at this time, Eisner's kind of obsessed with what Broadway tickets are going for and thinking that the Disney theme parks should really be charging at least that much. And straight plays back in the day, again, this is going to hurt given that you're living in New York right now. You're get yeah. a ticket for a straight play in New York at that time, Len. Top price was $35. <laughs> <laughs> At a musical, you wanted to go see Phantom? Sure. Just pull out $40 and you got a front row seat. Wow. Yes. So the difference now between a Broadway ticket price, Disneyland is charging $15 one day for an adult. Straight plays are $35, musical's are 40 So there's a lot of distance to cover here. But at the same time, Disney understands that The only way they can get the public on board with this is they have to be reinvesting in the park. So February of 1985... Walt Disney Productions announces it's reached an agreement with Lucasfilm to make a new attraction for the park, something called Star Ride.
0: Yeah, uh, it's not catchy enough. We've already we've already been through the naming thing.
1: But that project is 15 months out. I mean, that's the earliest they can get it open this, uh, the summer of 86. So, March of 1985, Eisner OKs construction of Videopolis, this teen dance club. It's going to have a 4, 5,000 square foot dance floor, two 16-foot wide projection screens, 70 video monitors. They get that thing built and open in 105 days. To be fair,
0: it's not much to it. Not many moving parts.
1: Well, again, and the other thing that's kind of funny, Land, is that one of the reasons they were able to get so much done so fast is because the 84 Summer Olympics was such a disaster in L.A., they were selling off a lot of the stuff that had been used for that, for pennies on the dollar, and Disney grabbed that stuff and used it to build Videopolis. Wow. But again, this still cost $3 million to do, and that money had to come from somewhere. So May
0: of 1980... Wait, Videopolis caught $3 million to make? $3 million to make. That's a lot of Rub and Sparkles videos, Jim. All right, okay.
1: So May, they bumped the ticket price from $15 to $16.50 for adults, and kids jumped from $10 to $10.95. Now, Rubberland, this is four months since the last price
0: increase and in I was going to say, Jim, so if, if Videopolis costs $3 million to make, every dollar in ticket price increases is $30 million. So you're saying that the $1. fifty increase is $45 million worth of price increases to pay for a $3 million Videopolis? You wonder why people don't like Wall Street. I'm just saying. <laughs> May right. of
1: 1985, literally the exact same time that they did this price increase. Disney starts shooting the first film of the Eisner era, and this is Down and Out in Beverly Hills. This is Disney's first ever R-rated comedy. It stars Bette Midler, Richard Dreyfuss, Nick Nolte. It's also the very first hit film of the Eisner regime, but it costs 14 million dollars to make. And I'm told the price increase at Disneyland, that extra 50 cents that they tacked on that was to pay for down and out in Beverly Hills. They're literally using the increases at the theme park as a bank now. Remember, the long-range plan here is to revitalize Disney Studios, start producing a series of motion pictures that the public would actually be interested in seeing with the hope yep. with the money from those movies who would then make it possible for the company to stop relying so heavily on the profitability of the theme parks. Because remember, the public is fickle. If Universal were to open a great ride or, or knots or that sort of thing, people might go that way. recognizing that they need to get projects into the parks that get people excited. The next thing is actually something they rely really, really heavily on the studio to do, and they announced July of 1985 that Michael Jackson and George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola are going to be teaming to make this 3D movie fantasy that will only be screened at Epcot and Disneyland Park. The original plan was that this movie was only going to
0: cost 10 to 15 million dollars to make but wait the video for captain eo mm-hmm. cost as much as down and out in beverly hills to make A- okay.
1: actually it cost more than <laughs> you know by the time wow. it was it this is only 17 minutes long
0: The finished product. That's what I'm saying. It's not like Bette Midler was playing the evil queen in that one and Nick Nolte was not one of Michael Jackson's sidekicks. I don't know where that money went. Well, that's been
1: kind of an interesting question at Disney Studios for quite some time. In fact, there's a story about Muppet Vision, which was the next 3D project that the studio did and a direct result of what happened with uh, Captain EO, again, originally projected it cost 10 to 15 million to make. Final cost was 23.7 million. Wow. Muppets was so tightly controlled that they, the, the budget that that was set for was $8 million, and they were so tightly controlled and so disciplined shooting that movie, they actually came in a million dollars under budget, which then allowed them to do some reshoots. In fact, the, the gag at the end with waldo the spirit of 3d turning into mickey mouse mm-hmm. that's the most expensive thing in that film Len, because cg was so expensive at that point the, but oh, right. but yeah. they, they had the money at the end to do reshoots and they had the money to hire a, a company to make a cg 3d mickey mouse and that still with that extra stuff still came in under budget the stories about how money got spent on captain eo are, are legion and because they were running so far over budget March of 86 was when Captain EO was actually supposed to originally open, but it was so far behind schedule and so screwed up, it got pushed off to September. But to make up... Yeah, six months. But to make up the, the financial problems, here's another price increase at Disneyland. Uh, this time around, though, they they bump the price of admit, adult admission from $16.50 to $17.95. So...
0: <laughs> another $30 million, $45 million. $45
1: million. And then, uh, kid price stayed the same. but. When Captain EO opens up, the lines are so long at the park, and so many people turn out that Eisner can't help himself. So, just three weeks after Captain EO opens, they bump ticket prices again. Oh, jeez! And this one will kill you, Len. They go from seventeen ninety-five to nineteen dollars. All right.
0: That's only fifteen million more.
1: Yep. So when I started in '84, what was the price? Ticket prices at Disneyland are $13 for adults, $9 for kids. 1984,
0: and then at the ni- at the end of 1985, prices are $19. Uh, actually, 1986. Okay, so in two years, the prices go up by 50 percent.
1: Yeah, and don't forget that they they, they also <laughs> jump kid prices. Right. They go from $10.95 to $12.95. Now, mind you, it's been 17 months since they bumped. The ticket prices for kids but you can see the clear cause and effect here with how disney management would first use the projected construction costs of an attraction and then pivot and use the popularity of these new attractions of the park to justify raising admission prices in our next installment of the chronological disneyland we're going to talk about how disney used this particular practice not to get westcott built necessarily but rather to clear a financial path for Disneyland's next big cutting attraction, which this one was hugely costly. We're talking 100 to $125 million in 1990s money, and that was the Indiana Jones Adventure.
0: Still a classic ride, so uh, I can kind of see that. A 50% increase in two years, though, Jim, is just, uh, it's just astounding to me.
1: Oh, it gets better, Lynn. Trust me. <laughs> but, but we'll get to that on the
0: next show. This makes regular Hollywood accounting or, you know, sort of like creative mob accounting look downright civilized in comparison. All right, we'll uh, we'll catch that on one on the uh, on the next episode. Folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes or Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim This is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care.